I'm excited that this is the feast day of Matthew, St. Matthew, better known in the church as the evangelist. I, um, you take a lot of assessments when you go to seminary, uh, a lot of gifts assessments, and you go to gifts workshops, and you have other people who've been in the saddle, who've been ordained longer than you, uh, give you their input and feedback about what your gift areas might be. And mine come back every time very strongly, evangelist, evangelist, evangelist. And so St. Matthew the Evangelist, um, I identify with him for a million reasons, his love of money. Um, It's one of the things I struggle with most in the ordained life, having to have given up on earning a living. You know, the IRS doesn't consider clergy people employees. We, according to them, we don't earn our livings. Uh, We live, it's true, we live entirely off the generosity of other people. We're considered stipendiary employees. So I can't earn more money. I can't wash more cars, do more surgeries, fly more air. I can't do anything to earn more money. I am wholly dependent on the generosity of other people. And at times, that's a little frustrating. So a love of money. Um, the other thing is, I think I really do enjoy hanging out with sinners more than church people. I, uh, one Sunday years ago, I, I, when I was a real fitness guy, I know it doesn't look like it now, but when I was a real fitness buff, um, a group of us, were, we decided to have our midlife crisis by um, doing triathlons, which are you, you, you swim, you bike, and you run. And, uh, and so we went to our first triathlon, and everybody, that we get, get there at 5 a.m., and you have to swim in this dirty pond, and then you ride a bike on a dangerous road on Folly Beach and Folly Road, and then you run, I don't know, five miles. It was a small triathlon. So, but you get there at 5 a.m. in your car, and you're nervous, and you're, you're worried, can I do it? You know, you've trained. But, and you get out, and as soon as you get out, People just start coming up to you, strangers, and they're they're weird looking. They've all got you know bathing caps on and goggles around their neck, and they've got two watches. And they're I mean you can tell they're really into fitness. They're carrying their bikes, and they're and they're and everybody wants to help you. Oh, can I help you? What's your name? Where are you from? You ever done this before? Let me get your bucket. Here's how you do it. And so the whole morning you're just surrounded by these people who seemed to really be excited that I was there. I went back to church the next week, walked up. The first thing somebody said to me was, we missed you last Sunday, where were you? And I went, well, to tell you the truth, I was at a triathlon, and I think, after talking to you, I kind of like that group better than this group. Not entirely true. It just seemed like, evangelistically, in terms of welcoming newcomers, in terms of being excited about seeing an unfamiliar face, this group of people was excited that there was somebody joining the tribe. And at times, I have been part of the problem, in church, I may appear to be to people coming and visiting like I really am not that excited they're there. Or at least I'm not so excited that I'd help them find a seat, show them where the bathroom was, or maybe even make sure they have a bulletin or a book in their hands. So I identify with St. Matthew lots of ways as he's described in the Bible. I want to tell you a quick story about one way to evangelize people, and then I'm going to dive right into uh, just a quick three-point reflection. Last week, we had the pleasure, several of us, of congratulating Eleanor Cambry and uh, retiring her from the Linen Guild. She came with wine, a.k.a. Jesus' blood, and some of them have crumbs, the body. And so they set the table for us, and then they clean the table up afterwards. I love the Linen Guild. I love everybody in this church. But So we have a Linen Guild luncheon, and we decide to have it at the River Room. And nine of us had gathered, and we were waiting on two people. I'll say their names, Linda Phillips and Lisa Rowe, who I think demographically were the youngest. They were running late, and Linda came in, and then Lisa finally sat down, and somebody from my end of the table shouted down to Lisa, because you're last, you have to say the blessing. 
Kind of like, you know, shame on you. That was not what they meant. And then somebody else added, and you got to sing the doxology. And we all laughed. Thank you. <laughs> so we all ordered, got our teas and our waters, and here came our uh, chicken salads and melon. And um, when the food was all set, somebody looked down and said, okay, Lisa. And so she did. She offered a beautiful blessing, no surprise. And then she started singing the doxology. In the middle of the river room at, at, at noon on a Tuesday. And as soon as she started, four or five on her end started. And then the rest of us on the other end heard her. So then we started singing. And by the time we got to the top of the doxology, praise God from whom... There wasn't a plate sound. There wasn't a utensil sound. All of the servers had stopped. It was as if the words of the doxology had captivated the river room on Tuesday at 12.15. And we sang it all the way through, and then we got to the end, and we did that beautiful exclamation point. Amen. And a few people clapped, and some of the wait staff looked at us and like, who are you, where are you from, and why are you doing this? Some people, of course, knew what the doxology was, and they may have even joined in. That brothers and sisters, was a very, very good form of evangelism. We didn't hand everybody in the restaurant a tract and say, come to Prince George or burn in hell. We didn't, we didn't say, you know, don't miss Sunday because Russ Parker's here. We simply allowed the Holy Spirit at that moment to make us risk a little bit, and we presented this image to at least the restaurant of a group of people who felt comfortable enough in public to praise God for all that he had done, not just Eleanor's service, not just the food, but our friendship and fellowship and everything else. It was a holy and beautiful moment. It really was. I wish you all could have been there. When Jesus calls us to follow him, one of the things I said on Sunday is, uh, to my frustration, maybe yours at times, uh, when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't give us a great deal of options. The first time I preached in seminary, I finished my sermon, I sat down, and several people, good job, not bad, whatever. And then one of my young uh, girls in the class came up to me, she said, Gary, that was a very good sermon, but I've never done well with people just standing up in front of the church admonishing us to stop sinning. In other words, what she had heard me preach for 11 minutes was essentially, hey, everybody, you're a bunch of sinners, just stop it, like the old Bob Newhart gag that he does. I mean, stop it, just quit sinning. That, that We'd all like to stop sinning. We'd all like to do a better job for Jesus or be more obedient. The truth of the matter is our sinful flesh keeps us kind of in tension until Jesus returns, so we're simultaneously sinners and saints. The bigger frustration, I think, with following Jesus is not that he just doesn't make us perfect at the moment. It's that, like I said, it doesn't come with a great deal of options. I was telling a young man in my house that I'm not a counselor. Charles loves to make fun of me. I have a three and out rule. I will meet anybody in this church to talk. I mean, seriously, for three times. But after three times, I'm going to either suggest they, they go to a prayer appointment or they go see a professional counselor because I'm not trained in counseling. What I'm trained to do is this, and it's like following Jesus for some people sitting in my office or my home. It's not really helpful. Here's what it is. Um, I decided to follow Jesus in 1984. And Jesus looked at me and said, terrific, Gary. Um, I want you to start going to men's Bible study next Tuesday. And I went, well, I live West Ashley, Jesus. I don't know if you know that. And the Bible study is downtown Charleston, and it's at 7 a.m. And that's not going to be real convenient. I don't think I can do men's Bible study at 7 a.m., Jesus. What else you got for me? He's like, no. If you want to follow me, the first thing you need to do is start going to Bible study. And I did. And that led to 
a million other things, men's conferences, Curcio, prison ministry. Uh, it, it just, Gary, you want to follow me? These are the, he, he never says, I got three choices for you, Gary. You can go to men's Bible study. You can take this free airline ticket, take a cruise. Here's $10,000 to gamble, and here's 20000 for food. Or, thirdly, you can get a new motorcycle and drive the Blue Ridge Parkway with a group of your friends. He, he doesn't give you, he hasn't given me those options. I will say, when I have decided to willingly obey Jesus, it seems as if he starts to open those other doors too. It may not look like an all-expenses-paid cruise or a, a, a motorcycle drive on the Blue Ridge Parkway, but everything he's given me in response to being obedient always seems to be, as Paul says, more than I can ask or imagine. Um, St. Matthew was an evangelist. He decided to follow Jesus. Um, He didn't leave his old life completely behind. Jesus really wants us to take our old life and he wants to gather it into this new life he's giving us so that we can use those things, those experiences, those successes and those failures uh, to really be a credible witness to the world. So here's three things I want us to think about if we decide today to follow Jesus. Number one, how often are we aware of him in our lives? How many times today already, it's noon, how many times today have we thanked him? Or how many times today have we apologized to him? If we're going to be a disciple, we need to be very aware of him because it's a relationship. Number two, how often have we put others first in our lives? How many times this morning have you considered someone else? Have you asked to do something for someone else? Have you phoned someone else? Have you done something for your next-door neighbor, brought a trash can in? I don't know. Or has your morning been filled up with all the things that you needed to get done? And then lastly, how many times today have you said, I'm sorry? I'm sorry usually means that we've taken a risk that either we shouldn't have or that we weren't aware would lead to some problem. But the gospel following Jesus is full of risks, brothers and sisters. It's full of risks. It's going to lead us to many places of I'm sorry. For me, it's always exuberance. I just go bolting off in one direction. I run over a couple people. I forget to close the door. I you know, leave money on the table. And I'm just all in for Jesus. And I have to go back and kind of go, I'm sorry I did that. I shouldn't have done that. I was a little hasty. Um, and so I'm learning with Jesus' help to maybe slow it down a bit. But following Christ always puts us in a place of risk. In order to follow Christ, I love that emergency, it's coming at the right time. What we have to declare is that, Lord, there's an emergency in my life. I'm experiencing famine. There's a dryness, Lord. I'm hungry, Lord. I'm thirsty, Lord. And then we, we implore him, Lord, come and end this famine in my life. And then that's the last piece. When we, in sincerity and in faith, ask him, to take away the famine, to remove it so that we can follow him, maybe for the first time, maybe again, we have to walk out in belief that he's heard what we've asked and he's leading us. Psalm 25.3 says, Lord, teach me your paths and show me your ways. It's a great thing to begin every morning with on our lips. Laying there in bed, open our eyes, oh, I've got a new day. Just starting with, Lord, teach me your paths and show me your ways. It's what St. Matthew said when Jesus walked by, and it's what all of you say because you're here today as evangelists. Amen.